This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like, particularly at this moment, is No Is Not Enough, Resisting Trump's Shock Politics and Winning the World We Need by Naomi Klein. Acclaimed journalist, activist, best-selling author, and frequent Dig guest, Naomi Klein has spent two decades studying political shocks, climate change, and brand bullies. From this unique perspective, she argues that Trump is not an aberration, but a logical extension of the worst, most dangerous trends of the past half century, the very conditions that have unleashed a rising tide of white nationalism the world over. It is not enough, she tells us, to merely resist, to say no. Our historical moment demands more, a credible and inspiring yes a roadmap to reclaiming the populist ground from those who want to divide us, and that sets a bold course for winning the fair and caring world we want and need. This timely, urgent book offers a bracing positive shock of its own, helping us understand just how we got here and how we can, collectively, come together and heal. Klein is not preaching to the choir, but framing the moment, connecting necessary dots, and outlining the challenge that lies ahead in clear terms that anyone can understand. No is Not Enough by Naomi Klein, out now from Haymarket Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Today is my interview with Mike Davis on the politics of coronavirus. It's given me a lot to think about. First, it is incredible how the conditions in which we make history can change so quickly and dramatically. I always knew this in the abstract, but have never, ever felt it so concretely, not even close. Trump and Republicans are proposing economic policies that are ideologically anathema because they understand very well that the entire system will come crashing down if they fail to act. This provides an opportunity to push hard for something big, to insist that the better world we have been fighting for all along is now, in fact, the only sort of world that will guarantee our survival. But this is also precisely where the Democratic Party's nihilistic commitment to conventionality poses such a threat, potentially allowing Trump to outflank them and to fashion himself into a wartime president of sorts. That would truly be a nightmare. It's also, however, far from an inevitability. As historian Greg Finneganov wrote on Twitter, quote, I don't think the GOP will do a lasting Heronvoke Strasserist pivot once the initial panic subsides. Both parties are parties of capital, and that still supersedes other contradictions. 
I mean, this entire administration has been a big experiment in how small of a heron vote crumb you can get away with tossing to people with one hand while continuing to rip them off with the other. I don't expect that to change, but the crumb might get a little bigger. In other words, there are reasons why Trump has never gone full Bannonite. And those reasons, to a degree that is still unclear, still exist. But again, things are changing fast, and the last thing we should do is take anything for granted or presume that anything in particular will come to pass. We have, after all, now been thoroughly disabused of all certainty. Anyhow, the market ostensibly sets the value of labor. But now we see what labor is most valuable in a crisis like this. And what we're seeing is that it's not only doctors and nurses, but also other healthcare workers and also low-wage service workers making food and cashiers at supermarkets and gas stations and nursing home and home care workers. These are the workers, it turns out, who we truly need in an emergency like this. The workers who are most important in terms of what they actually do are so often valued so little under capitalism. That has become incredibly clear. And this crisis reveals a lot about the justifications used to legitimate the status quo distribution of wealth. We should use this opportunity to explain what an economic system organized around other values would look like and to fight for that new system. We also should keep the world beyond the United States in mind and beyond the West. Viruses respect no borders, but their transmission and impact are profoundly shaped by social and economic divides. As Mike Davis writes, during the last major pandemic, the 1918 through early 1919 flu, aka the Spanish flu, Indians suffered a full 60% of the deaths, and Iran lost a fifth of its population. Just as the colonial system of a century ago redistributed death and suffering downward so dramatically to the world's colonized people, so will today's post-colonial world quite likely do the same to the world's poorest people, those people already denied basic health care, sanitation, nutrition, and housing. Davis writes, quote, This history, especially the unknown consequences of interactions with malnutrition and existing infections, should warn us that COVID-19 might take a different and more deadly path in the slums of Africa and South Asia. The danger to the global poor has been almost totally ignored by journalists and Western governments. No one knows what will happen over the coming weeks in Lagos, Nairobi, Karachi, or Calcutta. The only certainty is that rich countries and rich classes will focus on saving themselves to the exclusion of international solidarity and medical aid. What's clear, in other words, is that we need a left internationalist politics to confront the inevitable politics of elite and ethno-nationalist resource hoarding. Davis rightly critiques the U.S. left for its lack of internationalism. 
But I will add to the points he makes in the interview that Bernie's Green New Deal does provide for contributions to a global green climate fund, alongside a domestic climate justice resiliency fund directed to frontline communities. This is also something that the authors of A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal, are certainly thinking about. But don't get me wrong, Davis is very right that we must take seriously making our politics thoroughly internationalist. We must also work to connect our flourishing eco-socialist politics to our merging politics of microbiological socialism. What does this all reveal about nature as a world historical actor, and how should we incorporate disease into our analyses of what people call the Anthropocene or the Capitalocene? Most of us entirely missed incorporating an entire level of analysis, the microbiological level. And we on the left have missed this, I think, for the same reasons that so many other people have long denied or ignored global warming, even when the evidence was so clear. And that's because it's hard to understand a problem of such enormous magnitude until it's simply overwhelming to our practical existences. But what's even more important is that so little has been done to confront either climate change or pandemic disease because doing what would be necessary was never in the capitalist system's interest. All right, before we get started, we are going to be working really hard to provide you with the analysis that you need to understand this crisis, and we depend on you, our listeners, to support us at patreon.com slash the dig. We will also send you a left-wing book or books by way of our heroic postal service if you contribute at least $10 a month. Please, contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig if you can afford to do so, because many, of course, right now cannot afford to do that. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here is Mike Davis, who continues to follow the path he first chose in 1962 when he became a teenage member of the Congress of Racial Equality. He has written so many incredible books, and it's really an honor to have him on the show, including City of Courts, Planet of Slums, Prisoners of the American Dream, and The Monster at Our Door. The Global Threat of Avian Flu. His next book, out this April, is Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s, co-authored with John Wiener. Mike Davis, welcome to The Dig, and thank you for doing this interview on such short notice. Okay, thank you very much. The right is already casting the coronavirus pandemic in xenophobic and nationalist terms. The Chinese coronavirus, the Wuhan flu, or most recently, 
and absurdly the Kung flu, what do the Trump-aligned right want to accomplish by giving the virus a Chinese passport? What do they want the virus's geographic provenance to say about the global order? And what, in contrast, and in fact, does the pandemic tell us about the current organization of the world? That's a very big question. Obviously, what Trump and his uh, epigonies hope to accomplish is to use the pandemic to leverage border walls and right-wing nationalism in every way possible. Unfortunately, there's a long precedent for this. In the 1890s, the plague emerged in pandemic form in China and was spread uh, by maritime traffic across the world. When it reached Honolulu in 1900, Chinatown was burnt down. It was blamed on the Chinese and the belief, the widespread belief that Chinese were plague carriers. Likewise, in San Francisco, Chinatown was uh, quarantined and uh, surrounded by troops. People weren't let, let out, though it later happened that a second wave of plague developed in, of all places, Knob Hill, uh, the most exclusive neighborhood in San Francisco in 1924 in Los Angeles, plague reappeared, and the area near the old uh, mission, the old plaza in downtown L.A., uh, homes of Mexican workers there were burnt down as well as Chinese. So, I mean, and we could go further back to Italy's reaction to the plague and blaming it on, you know, for instance, Jews. And, and so on. I mean, that's really ancient history. And of course, we live in a period of, of, of extraordinary atavism, where all the old, what we thought was dead shit of the past is flying back in our, uh, uh, our faces, especially the yellow peril. I mean, we now have the, uh, the yellow peril, you know, officially sponsored by the, uh, you know, the Trump administration. A friend of mine suggested the other day that if you wanted social distancing, uh, the best thing to do is go to a Chinese restaurant. I think the press has overlooked what's happened in Asian communities, uh, for instance, in California, since the epidemic broke out. So this association of of plague with ethnicity uh, uh, or, or religion is probably thousands of years old. You wrote The Monster at Our Door, The Global Threat of Avian Flu. It was published in, in 2006. What did you warn against then, and how was that warning received? Because you've published a lot of books, and I would say that this one was not one of the most the most high-profile of the many you've published. Well, I, I suppose you could say that all of my writing, which primarily addresses the left, particularly young leftists, kind of divided into two projects. One, of course, has been ongoing writing about Los Angeles and uh, with John Wiener of the Nation. I, we've just published an 800-page book on LA in the 60s. But my other project has been an analysis, both historical and current, of globalization from a left perspective. And uh, that's why I wrote a book on the history of car bombs, and that's why I wrote 
the avian flu. And, and Monster de Dor looks at the kind of larger interrelationships between emergent diseases, the lack of medical preparedness, in fact, the process of disinvestment in public health, and the capitalist world economy. Could I give you an example? It's easy to uh, follow Edward uh, Lorenz and say that coronavirus is like the famous butterfly flapping its wings in, in the Amazon and causing a hurricane, that the world is so interconnected that a bat bites spiny anteater, a man eats it, and the world economy collapses. But of course, that's not what happens. And in Monster at the Door, I... I uh, cite a study that appeared in, in Science Magazine, a big study by an international collaboration of scientists, and they were looking at the emergence of Ebola and other diseases in West Africa. And their argument is as follows, that traditionally West Africans, and West Africa, by the way, is the most rapidly urbanizing area in the world, relied on fish protein. And there were what, a million and a half fishermen who supplied fish to coastal communities and cities. But starting in the uh, 1980s, the big factory fleets from uh, Europe, uh, Russia, Japan, basically began trawling the biomass of, of, of the Gulf of Guinea and put local fishermen out of work they estimate in the study that one half of the fish biomass disappeared within a, a single decade. So fish became increasingly expensive. Now, at the same time, multinational logging companies uh, were increasing uh, their operations in countries like Gabon, the Cameroons, and so on, the uh, Democratic Republic of, uh, of the Congo. And to keep labor costs down, they hired professional hunters to go out and kill basically anything that, that moves. And they hunted down about 80 different uh, mammal species to feed the crews. Well, with protein becoming more unaffordable in West African cities, increasingly city dwellers turned to the bushmeat. And bushmeat hunting, originally just practiced in the logging camps, became a major food source, a major protein source in West Africa. And that created the pathways, along with the destruction of rainforests and the exposure of humans to formerly isolated animal population. This created all the pathways for HIV, AIDS, and uh, also probably, uh, you know, for Ebola's. So my book was concerned to particularly explore the nexus between emergent diseases and uh, uh, global capitalism. An essay in a Chinese publication called Chuang, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, is really interesting on this subject. It reads, quote, There is simply nothing uniquely Chinese about the coronavirus outbreak. The explanations for why so many epidemics seem to arise in China is not cultural it's a matter of economic geography. How does this pandemic help us understand nature and the relationship between 
human and non-human nature, particularly in light of this larger issue of climate crisis and ecological crisis. The essay in Chuang puts it, quote, of course capitalism is culpable, but how exactly does the social economic sphere interface with the biological and what kind of deeper lessons might be drawn from the entire experience? And the answer, according to the essay, is to be found in, quote, evolutionary pressure cooker of capitalist agriculture and urbanization. This provides the ideal medium through which ever more devastating plagues are born, transformed, induced to zoonotic leaps, and then aggressively vectored through the human population. I haven't seen much of this analysis or really any of this in the mainstream media. How do you understand this zoonotic illness as emerging from the present political, economic, ecological order? The uh, article you cite, of course, uh, reprises Rob Wallace's important work in his uh, brilliant book on fact, factory farming. But let's look at this in the, um, you know, in the long durée. And William McNeil at the University of Chicago is one of the great pioneer historians of uh, both the environment, but particularly of, of disease. And he coined something called the law of the conservation of catastrophe. And basically what this is, increasing interactions between humans with previously uh, un, you know, previously wild animal species and increasingly interactions between formerly isolated human communities produces uh, plagues over time. And indeed, if you go back to the beginning of the Neolithic 12,000 years ago, the domestication of animals probably lowered life expectancy about 20 or 30 years to what it was when people were hunter-gatherers, because immediately things like uh, smallpox passed from cattle to humans and so on. So this is one of the great arch themes of human in, 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 in natural history. The geographical specificity of diseases is, uh, or disease emergence is often very easy to explain. Cholera's principal natural reservoir is the Gulf of Bengal, and that's because the the warm waters off the delta of the Ganges and Brahmaputra rivers are rich with human and animal sewage which flows into to the Gulf, and that's the becomes the natural habitat of, of cholera. Influenza generally emerges first in South China, because South China has the had for several millennia the most ingenious and productive agricultural system in the world, where domestic birds and pigs are woven into a productive system with double crops of rice every year, and therefore wild birds transmit new or exotic strains of influenza to domestic birds, which then infect pigs whose immune systems are very similar to humans, and then that passes uh, you know to humans. And it's actually a side effect of, of the, you know the brilliance of agricultural innovation. Now, you talked about in this Chinese article, which paraphrases, you know, Rob Wallace, 
is, you know, these are, you know, historical conditions that have existed for hundreds, maybe even, uh, you know, millennia. But factory farm, farming act as a bellows by essentially super urbanizing animal populations, putting a million chickens in a single uh, facility or 100,000 pigs or artificially creating the, the maximum conditions for disease emergence. We're accelerating evolution of new strains and we're ensuring the emergence of, you know, of, of pandemics. And I think his arguments and those of other people about factory farming are probably absolutely and scientifically correct. And although the industry, because of its own huge losses from uh, such diseases, you know, has evolved various protection methods, as long as factory farming uh, exists, this will continue. And SARS-CoV-2 outbreak in, in China comes from the heels or coincides with a massive die-off of, uh, of, of pigs in China. The industry has just been ravaged over the last uh, year or two by its, uh, by its own pandemic. And that isn't unusual because often animal and human pandemics can arise parallel to one another simultaneously. Now, a final point here is that coronavirus is an RNA virus like influenza or retroviruses like uh, AIDS. And one of the characteristics of RNA viruses, which are about the most primitive of all viruses, is uh, genetic recombination, which means that different strains of influenza or different strains of the SARS-like coronaviruses can exchange um, genes. They can literally recombine, create hybrid uh, uh, species. And it's generally believed amongst virologists the recombination rather than simple mutation explains the emergence of the most deadly influenza outbreaks in history like uh, the Spanish flu in 1918, early 1919. And in setting animal populations in which domestic animals in which uh, coronaviruses have long been fatal, unlike in humans where they contribute to cold, recombination happens there. And it's an important uh, factor. And that's the little discussed part of, 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 of the danger of coronaviruses uh, emerging in, in virulent forms. And it can lead to basically kind of non-linear uh, leaps via recombination in the, uh, both the morbidity and the mortality of such viruses. Does that mean that we are potentially going to see more mutations? An influenza uh, virus, for example, is evolving a million times faster than complex cell life. It exists on the margin of extinction because its error rate is so fantastic. But that means it's constantly changing the constant production of, of new and, and, and mutant strains. Right now, and remember, we're 
in producing virus uh, vaccines for influenza, we've been up to recently using the same methods as Jonas Salk and others developed when they produced the first uh, flu vaccination for the U.S. Army at the end of the Second World War. We estimate every year the strains emerging uh, from uh, China or Southeast Asia and then create vaccines for each strain. So we're dealing with a constant yearly change to fight seasonal flu. It's been entirely possible for a long time to develop a universal vaccine. Then instead of attacking the variable parts of the surface proteins of influenza A, blocks or locks onto the stable unchanging parts. So there should be a vaccine that is similar to, say, diphtheria or uh, tetanus immunization that's good for years, if not for life. Why don't we have such a vaccine? Well, the reason is very simple which is that Big Pharma has advocated as a whole the development, the research and development and manufacture of antivirals and antibiotics. 15 of the 18 largest firms have simply left the field to produce more. It's, it's ironic because the pharmaceutical industry's rationale for such high profits is precisely because they say they need those profits to maintain investment in research and development. Well, in fact, the big pharma now spends far more on advertising than it does on research and development. It's given up on antibiotics and antivirals simply because they're not as profitable as producing things that treat impotence in elderly males or things for heart diseases or you know, other conditions where they're able to exploit the public in such such an outrageous way in this country. But what, of course, has been happening because of their failure to uh, develop these absolutely essential drugs uh, is now we have an antibiotic-resistant epidemic of strains of uh, of staff and C. diff and so on, sweeping through hospitals and killing 30,000, 40,000 people a year who die from hospital infections. And the medical community has been screaming about this for years and warning what will happen when basically the antibiotic revolution of the 1940s, which did more than anything to reduce, to increase life expectancy, and Western Europe and the United States is now totally uh, totally reversed. And this becomes a very serious issue with the coronavirus pandemic because as people crowd into hospitals and overwhelm hospitals, they'll be exposed to hospital-based infections and critically ill people are simply roadkill for staff or C. diff. And I speak with some personal experience since I've been battling cancer for a couple of years and had an operation and immediately contracted a super virus, which almost killed me. And my experience, you know, is not, an, not at all 
unusual. So this is a, another source of added mortality in the current and current pandemic that directly stems from the private monopoly of uh, drug development. And the clear solution is we must break up big pharma and we must create a system for the public research and development and manufacture of absolutely essential vaccines and, and medicines. This doesn't mean that we'll nationalize the entire drug industry by controlling contracts and, you know, and prices and awarding them to, you know, to smaller, more entrepreneurial firms led by medical researchers, you know, than themselves rapidly ramp up the production of these things. I mean, otherwise, or let me put it this way, we are not experiencing just a pandemic. We're living in an age of pandemic. We're under siege from RNA viruses. Okay. We're under siege from antibiotic resistant bacteria. This is the real war. And instead of coming up to the plate and leading an all-out effort to uh, create a new regime of, of safety, we've done the opposite. We've allowed Big Pharma to march off, uh, to walk away from uh, the research, and we have downsized our public health systems at the very time all medical research has, has been screaming out that we have to you know, drastically ramp up uh, the number of ICU beds, the stockpiles of supplies, uh, the new antivirals, uh, y you know, antibiotics. Coronavirus is not a, in any way a, a surprise. We've seen this pandemic in innumerable Hollywood films. There's an immense literature warning about it. After the SARS epidemic, there were 10 or 12 books talking about the next outbreak of uh, a SARS-like virus. So the monster that's walked through our front door is an entirely, uh, you know, familiar one. I want to talk more about the healthcare system in a moment. But first, I'd like to return back to these questions about the relationship between political economy and the environment. Because in recent years, the climate crisis has prompted a lot of thinking about how the capitalist world system and the environment interact with one another as we move headlong into the precipice of just climate catastrophe. But but virus and there's tons of, of great writing and debates and a lot of debates over this. But viruses haven't typically informed left thinking about the environment. So my question is, how for you does this pandemic inform or challenge or reinforce the these analyses and debates on the eco-socialist left? Well, first of all, I mean, as I uh, tried to establish by talking about the example of West Africa, while it may be easy enough, in fact, it was, it, it's very shocking that China, after it the experience of SARS did not shut down entirely uh, the selling of, of, of wild animals for food and medicinal purposes. By the way, the first SARS epidemic jumped to us from civets. 
and civets were concerned with China because, ironically, they were believed to prevent influenza. But it's the case of, of fishing and logging and HIV and Ebola in West Africa show. It's been the undermining of local food security, which has helped, you know, accelerate these these viruses. Climate and disease, epidemic disease, infectious disease, of course, you know, intimately interact with one another. And with global warming, uh, you're seeing uh, a migration northward of some of the key vectors of hitherto tropical diseases like dengue fever. And we're finding the kind of mosquitoes, tiger mosquitoes and so on, have been responsible for millions and millions of deaths in hotter parts of, uh, of the world. In the case of the United States, uh, they've already moved across to the Rio Grande. There's no border wall that can protect us from mosquitoes. But the chief underlying condition of mass mortality remains the sanitation crisis across the world which gets worse every year as, as the population becomes more and more urban. I mean, the majority of people in Africa do not have access to, to clean water. Sanitation is in crisis everywhere, not only in the poor world, but parts of the development world. And that is responsible directly for the death of up to 2 million children a year from basically from diarrhea, from gastrointestinal diseases. And it's a precondition that exposes a large part of the human race to high mortality in cases of bacteria and viruses that in countries as good sanitation might be considered just mild outbreaks. The same thing with malnutrition. In my book on avian flu, I point out that most of the people who died from avian, from the Spanish flu in 1918, early 1919, were people in West India, where forced British grain exports to Britain and requisition of grains by the British uh, Indian Army produced a famine. And when the Spanish flu reached the bodies of malnourished or famine-stricken people, they did their greatest damage because, of course, hunger and malnutrition suppress immunity and basically make bodies highly vulnerable to, uh, to infections. And more recently, I've written about the emergency in, in Africa, where now 26 African countries have the coronavirus infection. It will soon appear in all. And Southern Africa, we have, for example, Central and Southern Africa, there are 24 million people still afflicted with AIDS, HIV, millions more with tuberculosis. South Africa has already declared a national emergency because of its understanding of what will happen if people with these conditions are affected in terms of medical care. Five of the six countries with the worst medical care in the world are in Africa, including the largest country in Africa, Nigeria. And 
even in a country that's considered one of the more developed African countries, Kenya, country that exports trained doctors and, and nurses to the, to the developed world, there are exactly 130 intensive care beds available in the whole country, country of 50 million people, and 200 nurses uh, in domestic hospital trained to deal uh, with critical cases, with ICU cases. So what we're seeing now in Western Europe, in the Middle East, China, and the United States may only be a precursor to a second wave or phase of the coronavirus uh, pandemic with much higher rates of mortality, including amongst groups which had not been very much endangered so far, like people under uh, uh, 50. That could all change in Africa and in South Asian slums as well. This outbreak is like turning on these bright fluorescent lights all over the United States and the world, exposing long-existing and often normalized inequalities and deprivations as just these monstrously cruel and dangerous things. And these, as, as you're describing, are the dividing lines across which the health and economic harms of the virus will be unevenly distributed. But it's also revealed that our highly unequal and socially austere system renders everything more dangerous for everyone. But my question is, how does this crisis inform your analysis of the American order and the global system as a whole, particularly in terms of how marginalization and immiseration both make, of course, marginalized and immiserated people exceedingly vulnerable to illness, death, and destitution, and also more generally, how that all creates a serious problem for the functioning of the entire order, for that order's reproduction? Well, before I get to the uh, question of whether uh, capitalist globalization is biologically sustainable or not, uh, (laughs) let's go straight to the biggest issue of all, which is incipient genocide. During the the high Cold War, there was not a person on Earth or patch of ground on Earth that wasn't important to the struggle between the two superpowers. And both superpowers advanced visions of progress for all of humanity. Um, You know, American free market capitalism or Soviet five, you know, five-year plans. It was a battle for the allegiance of every person on the planet. With the ending of the Cold War, any kind of vision or consciousness of universal progress disappeared. The Central African Republic, do we care what goes on there? Haiti, does it really matter anymore? So that started a whole process of retreat into uh, uh, national fortresses. Now, what happened today very clearly, and this has arguably been the case for more than a decade, is the large minority of humanity has essentially been triaged. That is, they've been written off. Their economic uh, surplus the labor requirements of, of the world economy. They are the ones facing the most drastic effects of climate change, which their countries played a little role in creating. 
especially through crop failures, continuous droughts and so on, which have already, I mean, is uh, drought is one of the big, most important background factors to everything that's been happening in the Middle East and now through disease. So instead of offering some vision of, some inclusive vision to these people, uh, we build walls against them. We've, you know, we've demonized them. And that basically is a death sentence over the next generation. And this is something that we're all culpable about, including the left. I could not be happier in my remaining years to see the, you know, the progressive turn of the new generation and the emergence of, uh, of, of socialism as part of the political discourse. But I don't think, apart from the groups working around you know, with migrants and the border, I don't think the American left has ever been, you know, less internationalist. I've not heard global poverty address in, you know, a single uh, of the, you know, the presidential uh, debates. I haven't heard it addressed, uh, you know, by the Sanders campaign. There's a very great danger that the American left is slipped into its own version of America uh, firstism. The only buddy, the only nation or group of people that have addressed the impending catastrophe in poor nations has been China. China's now ramping up emergency medical aid to other other countries. That hasn't even been discussed in in the United States. Authoritarian nationalism, you know, American firstism, and all of its European counterparts have basically excluded any any discussion, certainly any sense of urgency about the rest of the world. And China has, for whatever its reasons, been is is becoming the major exception to that. Well, on that issue of of migration and nationalism, I don't know quite how to phrase this, but there's this there's something very weird about how the restriction on the freedom of movement imposed to contain this virus is in sync with the xenophobic nationalism of the far right. We've already seen Trump in recent days use the crisis to bar all asylum seekers at the border. What do you make of that? And how do we make the response to this crisis into something grounded in international solidarity rather than as a pretext for more xenophobic nationalism and border hardening? Well, recall that during the urban industrial revolution of the 19th century, the Victorian middle classes and upper classes initially tried to deal with disease threats simply by moving further away from the poor. Uh, The working poor tended to live in uh, the east ends of northern hemisphere cities because that's the direction that coal smoke blew in. And so by sequestering themselves and, uh, you know, the west ends of, uh, of cities, they thought to avoid contact with the poor. This was an absurd policy. Uh, it was shown during the great cholera epidemics of the 19th century when cholera simply ignored the uh, class geography of London and other cities and began to kill the middle classes as well. This finally led to general sanitation reforms and the provision of clean water for everybody is the uh, middle classes realized that they could not isolate themselves from diseases incubated or 
fan to epidemic level and the poverty and, and sickness of the slums. That's kind of the world situation today. Viruses and bacteria, no, you know, no, no borders, and they cannot be kept out. I'm not saying that containment attempts are are futile. They're not. But as in the case of San Francisco during the third plague pandemic at the beginning of the century, you could block off quarantine Chinatown. But the plague then appeared in the richest neighbor of neighborhood of uh, of San Francisco. Now, of course, this pandemic is being weaponized in every way possible, you know, by the right and by um, uh, neo-fascist uh, movements. But we ourselves, and I'm talking about progressives, contribute to this conflation of of disease risk and the need to restrict migration and so on by not acting as communists were encouraged in the Communist Manifesto. When our founders wrote that communists differed from the mainstream of the workers' movement only in two respects, that they represented the future and struggles of the present, and they represented the interests of the global working class as a whole and struggles of the local and, you know, in national scale. Right here in San Diego, where I lived, I mean, I grew up along the border and now I'm living again on the border. Uh, half my wife's family are uh, living in Tijuana. And now we're going to talk about closing the Mexican border entirely, despite the 100, uh, 100 to 200,000 people that cross it every day for work. Is this going to be effective against pandemic in San Diego? Of course not. Uh, and we've created now these these squalid migrant camps on the other side of the border where health conditions, despite the heroic efforts of many so many NGOs, are absolutely you know appalling. So on a global scale, we're going to rediscover, just like the you know the bourgeoisie of Victorian London did, that we can't simply wall ourselves off from pandemics. What we can do is ensure millions of deaths on the other side of the border because of our xenophobia, because of our refusal uh, to share data, provide medical supplies. And also, in some cases, we will be the victims of this. Uh, the Cubans, I, I said the Chinese were the ones giving uh, medical aid to poor countries. And that's really true. Cubans, as usual, have been the first to respond. And Cuban doctors are everywhere. Cuba's offered medical aid to the United States. They have the most extensive experience of any group of uh, any medical establishment in the world in dealing with Ebola fever because they've been at the front lines of it in, in Africa, you know, for two two decades. Mike, you, you didn't get the memo from the Democratic establishment in the corporate media that you're not allowed to ever say anything nice about Cuba, ever. Well, actually, I got that memo about uh, <laughs> 50 years ago. <laughs> but, but I've managed uh, to you know, ignore it. If one were to single out any group of medical workers, any research community in the world, who's been on top of stuff day one? It, it, it's been in Cuba, uh, and Cuban 
medicine and the availability of medical school training to every portion of the Cuban population remain models, whatever other criticisms uh, of the regime. I mean, black men in the American South have lower life expectancies than do you know, men in uh, Cuba, part of the United States and certain uh, of our populations are basically uh, living third world lives with third world health provision. This reminds me of an argument that I make in the conclusion of my book on nativist politics, where I call right wing nationalism the ultimate and most dangerous form of climate denialism because it's premised on the notion that our country's future well-being somehow doesn't depend on the well-being of the world, or in fact, even worse, that it may depend on the subjugation and immiseration of the rest of the world, which is the exact opposite of the unprecedented global cooperation that we need to overcome the climate crisis. And now this feels very much true of the coronavirus as well. Well, there is a difference between the huge dangers posed to agriculture in so many parts of the world and to food security by climate change and by pandemics, which is that viruses and bacteria can hitchhike rides on on jet planes and as in the case of SARS in 2003, 24 hours after the detection of of the first infection, it already spread to five, you know, other countries. Climate change is different because of the separation of the sources of emissions from the areas that face its greatest and most disastrous impacts. And we can simply ignore those people with little cost to ourselves. This is why I wrote in a, an essay long ago called Who Will Build the Ark? That there's no rational choice logic that is no selfish logic that directs wealthy countries to provide assistance to poor countries as a result of this total reorganization of agriculture and health uh, around the world. In case of pandemic diseases, there's a direct interest, at least in, in the long term, but not in the case of of climate change. And there's tremendous confusion, even amongst Greens in this country and Western Europe, over the difference between mitigation and adaptation. I've criticized uh, people, including uh, our governor in California, who argued that reduction of uh, greenhouse gases in California will help reduce wildfires. There's no direct connection at all. Unfortunately, it's an absolute need that we do our part in reducing global admissions, but ignores the costs of adaptation and the crisis now in countries that, for instance, in Central America, the Caribbean, the entire Middle East, Eastern Mediterranean, the Indus Valley in in Pakistan face the enormous challenges of adaptation, which in fact are far beyond the means of any of those countries, even if they had progressive political systems, which in fact most of them don't. And this is why I talk about uh, a triage that's already de facto occurred. And again, 
under the Trump administration, we've retreated even from talking about our promised contributions to the the World Fund that supposedly helps countries, you know, adapt. It's become a dead letter in this country. And I haven't, again, heard any of the progressive candidates or leaders speak out on this question. What's needed is a massive transfer of wealth to the affected parts, most affected parts of the world, and an open door for migration. Nothing's more ironic than the fact that actually we're facing, uh, you know, despite all the fears about automation, Western Europe, Japan, uh, the United States, even China, now facing labor shortages. We need larger labor forces. And this is particularly acute in in, uh, geriatric countries like uh, uh, Italy, but we refuse uh, the migrants who are necessary. Necessary, amongst other things, to take care of our aging populations, to take care of sick people, to, to man the nursing homes. Overpopulation around the world is not uh, the problem that was once believed to be. The problem is a maldistribution of populations. None of this gets discussed because the international solidaristic context isn't isn't there. And it's really incumbent on the American left to uh, remediate this, to begin talking in global terms, talking about workers and poor people across the planet. But again, climate change is, I mean, we talk about a new, a green new, a new deal. Well, that's fine and well, but it doesn't provide for the adaptation of, of at-risk poor communities in the United States. And it does nothing whatsoever for the hundreds of millions of people who are in, directly in the path of, I mean, in the Middle East, the Fertile Crescent, I, I work with, I've worked in the past with some uh, absolutely world-class climatologists, paleoclimatologists at Lamont Daugherty, and one of them wrote years ago, he said, the Fertile Crescent has collapsed. There is no more Fertile Crescent. Water shortages and droughts in the Middle East have changed in the most fundamental and structural way the relation of agriculture to their urban societies and food security, and they've already created millions of migrants. This is what lies, you know, behind the, you know, the civil wars in the area. Who in the American left, you know, uh, uh, talks about these things? The only one I can think of is Christian Perenni a few years ago, wrote an excellent book that raises all these questions, but it's few and far between. We can have to resist this danger of falling into a kind of left-wing version of national uh, solipsism. This does bring us back to the earlier question that you said you'd get around to answering, which is whether global capitalism is biologically sustainable. Not in the absence of a international public health infrastructure, of an adequate warning system, of an international emergency response uh, system in the absence of absolutely massive investment building up the frontline 
capacities of poor countries and cities to to respond. And ultimately, even that is uh, uh, an impossible and at this point unimaginable reform. Global capitalism, meaning a whole bunch of different things, from the failure of big pharma to produce uh, the medicines required, from the absence of health provisions for their workers, to predatory activities like undermining and destroying local protein sources and evicting tens and actually hundred millions of of small farmers from their land, forcing them into slums, and the reign of you know a profit over everything rather than you know human rights. You know, we now see that it's not only in regard to climate change that global capitalism is a threat, a direct threat to human survival, but in terms of our health as well. And what we will see uh, inevitably as a result of this crisis is that longevity will decrease, perhaps more drastically in poorer countries, but also in richer countries. That happened dramatically in the United States after the uh, 1980s Spanish, you know, Spanish in- influenza. I mean, my God, could there be a you know a better and more complete case for universal suffrage uh, coverage and uh, Medicaid for all and Medicare for all than what we're seeing if we look out our windows right now? And it's interesting that even Trump seems to now finally sulked off to 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 a corner and some of what were uh, formerly considered to be impossible radical proposals like using the 1950 defense uh laws to for government production of, of vital health supplies are in fact now happening that we have a suddenly major attention to paid guaranteed paid sick leave for every worker uh, in the United States and and so on. Uh, But we mustn't declare a moratorium on on protests or or politics. And I know that groups like DSA and so on uh, are saying that, but we must undertake ourselves individually if, if that's the only way to continue to organize people, to continue to, uh, uh, protests. And the immediate battle ahead of us will be this summer at the Democratic Convention. And we must absolutely ensure that Medicare for all is part of the Democratic platform. And I know that's probably what the Sanders campaign is gearing up to do now. He'll probably make a concession speech without conceding the struggle to control the Democratic platform. And, you know, that very much is one of our highest priorities, I think. Markets are are clearly failing to do what they're purportedly meant to do right now, which is to ostensibly efficiently allocate resources from from masks and hand sanitizer to, as we've discussed a bit, essential medical services. You know, these are all obvious examples. And but then there's also that more general failure in terms of people losing their income, which is prompting a collapse in demand for goods and services, which I imagine will only accelerate to a pretty extreme point pretty soon. Aaron Bananev recently 
recently tweeted, quote, As the pandemic continues to wreak havoc on human beings, many among us are on the lookout for the credit event that freezes the financial system. Developments in the commercial paper market today suggest that we may be approaching a possible event horizon. In that context, states may be forced to adopt wartime measures focused on the production of use values and bypassing the market in a way that would dramatically alter our sense of political possibilities in the pandemic's aftermath. What do you think about this? How might this crisis, as it's currently unfolding, remake state capitalist relations? And how might how might we, as an organized left, not organized as we need to be, but perhaps more organized than, than I've ever seen in my two decades on the U.S. left, shape this unfolding process so that maybe we emerge from the crisis different and different in a good way? What you quoted, it's very eloquent and a very eloquent statement of what we should be arguing. Any expectation that this will arise out of uh, the markets themselves or you know, out of a federal government controlled by the right, or for that matter, even by establishment Democrats, of course, is a, a you know a fantasy. It's absolutely hopeless. I mean, Trump in every way right now is trying to ensure that the crisis is controlled by the private sector and rebounds to the benefit of the private sector. He is, of course, probably really helpless in terms of, of saving the market despite all of his efforts and his administration's efforts uh, at this point. But all the powerful propaganda machinery, private medicine, uh, pharmaceutical industry, and so on, will be turned uh, against the priorities of you know, the democratic public health and this, the production of use values. By the way, the wartime analogy may not be exactly accurate. During the Second World War, yes, Americans planted victory gardens, did a lot of other great things. But in fact, the profits to corporations and to in private sector were probably the highest in history. Part of the reason for the post-war, you know, the post-war uh, boom. And I'd also say that in making the kind of argument you're suggesting, we face the same problem that the Sanders campaign has had. We need to say things more succinctly. We need fewer talking points. We need a platform now. You know, what are the eight things we stand for? What are the eight things we demand or the six things or the... you know, uh, the 12 things. I listened to Sanders' press conference the other day. It was entirely admirable. But my teenage son was listening to it as well. He's a real Sanderista. And I asked him, I said, explain exactly what he said. And he said, there's too many things to explain. We need to, to refine a bold emergency program, but in a way that's uh, popularized. And then, of course, we need a national solidarity campaign with health workers. I think nurses are the social conscious, organized nurses are the social conscious of the country right now. I'm not kidding. I think they really are become kind of the vanguard of the the proletariat. And we should support them and other health workers in any way possible and publicize their demands and views on the crisis, help make their voices heard everywhere. 
This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond, and you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Revolting Prostitutes, The Fight for Sex Workers' Rights by Juno Mack and Molly Smith. How the law harms sex workers and what they want instead. Do you have to endorse prostitution in order to support sex worker rights? Should clients be criminalized? And can the police deliver justice? In Revolting Prostitutes, Sex workers Juno Mack and Molly Smith bring a fresh perspective to questions that have long been contentious. Speaking from a growing global sex worker rights movement and situating their argument firmly within wider questions of migration, work, feminism, and resistance to white supremacy— They make it clear that anyone committed to working towards justice and freedom should be in support of sex worker rights. Revolting Prostitutes, The Fight for Sex Workers' Rights by Juno Mack and Molly Smith. Out now from Verso Books. The politics of this are just extremely unclear. I've really never been less certain about how the future near, medium, long term might play out. And the politics really seem to push in a lot of different and contradictory directions, at least for the moment. On the one hand, the crisis, as you were saying, seems to make a very strong case for the left argument for things like single-payer health care, paid sick leave, maybe a homes guarantee, these core left priorities that were part of the Sanders platform, that are part of the Sanders platform. But it's just more clear than ever that that leaving people at the mercy of the the so-called free market is is murderous. And it's also, as as Aaron Beninov tweeted, the, the crisis is just going to force the state to to do things that would have seemed really radical very re- until very recently in order just to ensure that the system survives. We have Republicans proposing UBI. But then also we have the Trumpist right, as we've discussed, using the coronavirus to stoke xenophobia and whatever other reactionary disinformation they decide is useful for them. One more factor is just that we all thought that the crisis, the crises as they existed, would benefit the the left in the Bernie campaign against the Democratic establishment, and they did up to a certain point. But ultimately, we had this this powerful and media reinforced desire among Democrats to d- just return to normal. And I also worry that this that this crisis will just turbocharge those powerful anxieties, those anxieties that underwrote Biden's resurgence. What do you make of all of these different contradictory forces at play? We suffer from the absence of the kind of authoritative, authoritative media of progressives, you know, of the left. Jacobin's wonderful. I like the nation, et cetera, you know, et cetera. But it's very difficult, maybe especially difficult for people like me who are still living in an analog universe in the 20th century to know where to turn, where to get information from. Uh, so much of what's written, including my stuff, kind of repeats 
the obvious. So I think, although, you know, the internet allows 100 flowers to bloom, it doesn't serve the role that, for instance, back in the 60s, something like the Guardian newspaper uh, played. And even the nation is a kind of journal of record of uh, the progressive movement, not necessarily of, you know, of the left. It's little real investigative journalist capacity. And I just heard from the publisher of, of, of the nation that everybody's now working, working from home. And they're just trying to, you know, get what they can out. Uh, we need more powerful and more kind of represent, uh, uh, you know, authoritative uh, media to uh, deal with this. I think right now that where some of our attention really needs to be placed on is and focused on the, the major transmission belt of corona-related fatalities, and that's in the, you know, the corrupt and decrepit nursing home and assisted living care system in the United States. Jim Straub, who's an old friend of mine, I knew him from the time when he was a, a hobo riding the rails for uh, the SEIU. He's the organizer for nursing home workers and the Seattle area. And uh, he has a piece coming out in the nation, if it's not already out there, on how the coronavirus from one facility has quickly escaped to 10 more because of the fact that nursing home workers, aside from being totally untrained to deal with a situation like this, are so poorly paid that a large percentage of them have two jobs work in a second nursing home within the same area. And when the outbreak occurred, the employees were over, overlooked. Public health officials did not ask him whether they worked at other uh, moonlighted, at other nursing facilities or about their health or anything. And the nursing homes that now warehouse two and a half million elderly Americans, most of them on Medicare, a system which is was close to bankruptcy and collapse before this pandemic ever ever began. This has been neglected in the press. This should become a you know a major focus of of, of our demands. Nursing employees face the same risk that nurses and doctors do, but do they have face masks? Well, forty percent of nurses don't, and I assume that you know very very few nursing home you know, employees too. There are hundreds of thousands of people on the front lines who are being over overlooked, threatening not only their own health, but making them uh, additional sources of, of, of transmission of, the, you know, the pandemic. Those sound like sensible demands to focus around, but to what degree do you see this crisis, I guess, objectively playing into tending to play into our politics, and to what extent do you see it playing out to the benefit of those of, of Biden or Trump or or other political opponents? Well, I mean, you know, that depends on us, and it depends on the accumulated, you know, strength and understanding of 
you know, the left across the world. In this case, I mean, we're in an open combat. That's why, you know, even if Bernie concedes today or sometime later in the week, the fight has to has to continue. The fight against Biden and those who represent simply restoration of the ancient regime has to be raised to an even higher pitch, above all in the struggle over the platform in the convention. Now, of course, people will say convention platforms usually are fairly meaningless and that candidates never actually live up to the promises. But to win that in the convention and to win the demands that uh, Sanders has been making about how to react to the pandemic, this constitutes the kind of promissory note that become enormously important as progressives, you know, battle the mainstreamers and local races, uh, congressional and state legislative races across the country. But again, we should never overlook the capacity of the system to instrumentalize this or to ensure that concessions made are immediately clawed back after, for instance, a, a vaccine is available. I mean, there's been so many missed opportunities in recent American history. The mortgage and loan crisis at the beginning of the 90s put two million homes or apartments under government ownership, and they were immediately under Clinton turned around and auctioned off at, at below market prices to uh, private speculators. The banking crisis in 2008, again, a huge stock of, of failed homes sold off to the private sector, an opportunity to nationalize the banks, which even some Republicans were thinking about, ignored by the Obama administration. It's the nature of our age when the gods of chaos rule that opportunities like this will come up again and again. And hopefully we're learning how to take advantage of this using this younger generation's extraordinary turn to the left to become powerful enough to have national uh, uh, national consequence. What do we need to to learn, though? Because what worries me is about how, how fear has worked to the benefit of both Trump and then also the Democratic establishment. Trump, of course, ran on the fear of migrants and terrorism. But then, and we all know that, that's obvious, but then Biden came from way behind to surge past Sanders so recently, just in the last couple of weeks, because Bernie was the front runner, and we were all so thrilled that the seemingly impossible might happen here in the United States of America of all places. And the in, in Biden surged past Sanders because of this argument of around electability, which itself is rooted in fear, the fear of Democratic voters of Trump's reelection. So w- what should we be learning so that we can take advantage of this crisis and not let it just lead to the world getting worse? Well, we need accurate analysis. I mean, if you look at the entire primary season, and if you add together the Biden, Klobuchar, Budacek votes and compare them to Sanders plus Warren, there was a kind of stable division of about 55, 60 percent 
for the restorationists or the democratic establishment. And 40, and in a few cases, 45% for the progressive wing of the party, which is actually an astonishing accomplishment. So we shouldn't be surprised once the others had dropped out of the race and immediately endorsed uh, Biden, that his, you know, that his numbers, you know, would rise. I heard uh, several of former Obama people in recent interviews say, oh, this idea of a democratic establishment, totally a myth. There is no establishment. Look around you. Well, look around you. And what you've seen is in, within 24 or 36 hours, this establishment was taking total control over the primary elections and trying to take total control over the party. They're all there lined up. There obviously was some preparation to ensure that that happened. Of course, it should not overstress ever electoral politics over movement politics. <clears throat> and one of the things cheering to me that's happened is been emergence of a left wing like in DSA that is conducted very sophisticated debates about how you combine movement with electoral politics, you know, the streets with the polling places. But it's nonetheless true that electoral campaigns, even with the best of intentions, tend to suck the oxygen out of the air for ongoing movements, uh, strikes and street demonstrations and so on. And it's also the case very unfortunately, since it was first analyzed by Michaels, the uh, right-wing German social democratic political scientist, whose famous uh, book on the German social democratic party accurately predicted that reformist left-wing movements in power tend to disorganize their bases. And that can happen to the Sanders campaign. And this is really incumbent on us to to raise our our political discussions about tactics and strategy to to a much higher level. Do you think that we were too optimistic about the conditions that we were working in, and that we thought a real political crisis had arrived before it had actually arrived in full? Like, what was the reigning political economic order until? the past few weeks, perhaps only at the precipice of a more significant crisis that we may now be entering into for real as we speak? Well, no. I mean, certainly in a historical perspective, it's astonishing to see the growth of a progressive movement in this country that calls itself socialist, whatever its understanding of socialists. This is something in nature of a historical miracle, in my opinion. But remember also that the Clinton-Obama Democratic Party closed down every opportunity, for instance, produce the kind of reports and indictments that the New Deal did of corporate corruption, of corporate control of politics, and so on. You know, the Obama campaign immediately before inauguration reached a deal with the Bush administration not to launch deep investigations or prosecuting anybody for the crimes of, uh, of the Iraq war. And that establishment has always served to, you know, reduce rather than to uh, increase public exposure 
whether this is because of sheer political cowardice or because of some shared vested interest, uh, is a point to an interesting point to bait. So much more could have been made out of it, and so much more would have been made out of it in previous, uh, you know, historical eras. Now, one of the problems today is that even as you know, a true national left has emerged, it is unwittingly or unconsciously taken on some of the coloration of the times. We have to salute the flag. We have to bless uh, the troops in the field, even as we call for the return home. We accept so much of the nationalistic context of politics, the most obnoxious of which is this uh, religion around the Constitution. I mean, my God, the progressives of the turn of the century. Woodrow Wilson thought the Constitution was totally obsolete. Progressive Republicans uh, campaigned about it all, uh, all the time. Now even progressives have to bow their heads be, before this document written by slave owners and, and wealthy merchants. But I have to make... I have to do some special pleading here. The current left has emerged out of the coincidence between the threatened equal rights of minorities in this country and the downward mobility of college graduates, particularly those who are first-time uh, graduates who come from immigrant or, or poor families. That's created a material base for the translation of uh, the ideas from Occupy and, and, and DSA on, on a much larger scale. But at the time of Occupy, I criticized Occupy for two things. One was for this idea of a 1% when anybody with any political maturity knows in this country that it, at least a third of the population would vote for uh, Adolf Hitler in, in a split second if he came clothed in an American flag and uh, said all the bigoted things uh, they, they want, to, uh, want to hear. That's a structure in American history. You're not going to change that. You're not going to win the country club elites to the Democrats or to even humanistic politics ever. I also criticized Occupy. And in a sense, everything that's grown up since then for its exclusive focus on income inequality. But none of this is what socialists classically should be saying or focusing on. Income and wealth inequality grow out of the concentration of economic power. And it's corporate property and economic power that we should talk about, the exclusive monopoly over making fundamental decisions about the use of surplus economic product, about investment, about closing entire towns by down by capital movements. We need to be talking again about social ownership, not nationalization in a crude sense, but social ownership of the corporate 500. We need to be focusing that the issue is giving workers and communities the power to make decisions about their, their economic futures, to allow the public democratically to shape major investment decisions and so on. 
In other words, I'm saying that a genuine socialist voice has been largely absent. Now, it doesn't mean that the socialist voice has to be counterposed to the progressive agenda. We can support and should support the Sanders platform, which is basically revival of the uh, FDR's um, second new, new deal. Of course, we should support economic and social citizenship, but we also have to be the voice demanding the, the kind of true structural changes, the structural changes which are absolutely necessary to ensure uh, equality and, in fact, human survival. And that's a point I've, I've, I've kind of dwelt on in, in monotonous fashion for uh, the last 12 or 13 years. I do very much agree with you that the U.S. left is way less internationalist perhaps than than ever. Why is that? How did we go from the internationalist, third-worldist left of the 60s and 70s and even through the 80s with the Central American Solidarity Movement to the collapse of that very sort of thinking at the very moment of neoliberal globalization's triumph? Well, there, there are two factors there. And one factor, which may not seem to address your this question, but in fact does, is the class composition of the socialist left in this country. I mean, if you look at Sanders' support, the huge number of working class origin college graduates who belong to the spectacular numbers of high school graduate working poor that flocked to him and to nobody, uh, nobody else. But then you look to socialist organizations themselves and how many working class members do our groups have? Do those groups create conditions that allow working class youth to join them? I think not. And I've argued in the past when the highest priorities of the left has to become more like look more like the people that we claim, whose interests we claim to uh, represent. In other words, we need more working class leadership, and that means dealing directly with problems for people who don't have a college degree or don't have a, you know, a family source of income and so on. This is a point Lenin made 118 years ago on what is to be done. He said it would be a crime for advanced workers, militant workers, to just be left in factories. The movement should do everything possible to give them sabbatical, to acquire intellectual skills, to create a party that homogenizes intellectuals and and militant workers. That point, I believe, remains uh, as valid as ever. On the collapse of internationalism, well, the internationalist instinct is still there. We've seen it massively in opposition to wars, but we haven't seen that opposition entrench itself as a permanent force. When was the last demonstration we went to over Afghanistan or, uh, or Iraq? We've had too many examples like the Dean campaign where the protest movement assumes a brief electoral form and then and then dissipates. 
I think the highest quotient of internationalism is precisely amongst <clears throat> immigrant youth and youth of color in this country. It might be higher, but you talk to, I mean, I have, I have two uh, Mexican kids still in, in high school. Talk to, talk to my kids and, and their friends. All their friends are sons and daughters of immigrants. They're fiercely critical of American, you know, nationalism. They have, they have the kind of consciousness that could translate easily into powerful, you know, solidaristic politics. But if the leading groups on the left don't mobilize that, don't emphasize it, if they remain content to stay within the same left populist shell, that potential won't be won't be realized precisely when it's needed needed the most. And also, of course, the international linkages between leftists have diminished or in some cases collapsed. I mean, the social the world social forum movement was once such a powerful vehicle for that, but it basically no longer exists. Am I correct? Yeah, no, and, and uh, it might exist in some as some sort of uh, shell of its former self, but I'm not aware of its existence. There's a lot of really interesting thoughts there, and I agree I, that the the especially the most radical currents of the immigrant rights movement are also the nucleus of what is perhaps a more profoundly inter- internationalist U.S. left. I think another issue is perhaps the the collapse of the communist third world alternative because it wasn't just that the U.S. and European left were against Western imperialism, but that they were in solidarity and allied with the people fighting Western imperialism who were third world national liberation movements and communists, which we can't exactly have the same relationship with ISIS today. Well, I I have to confess that I've been epically wrong uh, a couple of times <laughs> in my life. The first was my belief, uh, which I could still partially defend, my belief in the 60s and early 70s that a communist reformation was possible. I joined the Communist Party in Southern California in 1968 precisely because they defended Prague Spring and condemned the Soviet invasion. And there seemed to be real forces around, uh, temporarily represented by Eurocommunism, that showed that maybe the communist movement could rediscover its principles and begin to dismantle you know, some of the superstructures, Stalinism. Well, Brezhnev essentially buried that possibility when the tanks went into Prague. Secondly, I believe that we could create an alternative through a network of smaller far-left groups. And I was very active in the Mandel wing of the, the, the Fourth International, though I'm hardly would be considered the Trotskyists by most uh, you know, by most Trotskyists. And there were a small group of us in this country, including people like Bob Brenner or the well-known San Francisco union organizer, Seymour Kramer, who died a few years ago. You know, we spent a decade trying to build something and it, and it ultimately created uh, against the current in the group solidarity, but with minuscule, minuscule effect. But I think that if you believe 
that we're suddenly in a new age, a, a much darker age over the last couple of years. And, and now with the, with the pandemic, we should continue to fight for everything we're fighting for, but we need to be less Pollyannish about it. The idea that we would triumphantly take the White House and Congress and then pass a second uh, New Deal and live happily ever after. That's not the world we live in. And I believe that the case remains of the necessity of an organization of organizers, a party, in other words. I remain a uh, modified Leninist in my beliefs and a communist with a small C, which of course sets me apart from the vast majority of you know, friends and colleagues uh, on, on the left, but it's the only kind of organization that would be able to survive the times uh, ahead of us. Should it be democratically centralist? No, I don't think Leninism demands that. It demanded it in the conditions of uh, Tsarist Russia, perhaps. No, it doesn't. But any way you look at it, you come back for the need for an organization of organizers oriented to the, uh, the recruitment and, and, and development of young working people that is able to act in the way that the communists in the manifesto were urged to by Marx and Engels, and also prepared to deal with the repression that lies uh, ahead. I mean, this day-by-day -day accumulation of the repressive capacities of, of, of the state and the public collaboration in this out of the fear of terror and now out of the uh, fear of disease. Now, my position, I'm sure, is highly uh, unpopular, and I don't exactly try and argue this from the podium very often, but it's, it, it is generally what I still believe. Well, you're, you're at the right podium here, I think. Uh, it all seems about right to me. And I think probably to a lot of my listeners too. And and it, and it seems returning to to something you said a few minutes back that the task is to link up Sanders' broader working class support base with what historian Gabriel Winnett wrote about in a in an N plus one essay recently. I'm not sure if you saw it, which is that you know the downwardly mobile professional managerial class that that makes up so much of DSA. Well, that's. That's true, but there's still the <laughs> tend to be the upper echelon of that downwardly mobile professional managerial class. My wife is a DSA member, but she doesn't go to meetings or isn't very active. It's not because she disagrees with DSA, but she's a woman of color, and there's so few other Latinos or or black women in the local in the local group, and that's of course the experience of of, of many young people when they go to their first uh, radical meeting uh, these days. I mean, that's why AOC is such an extraordinary phenomenon, because she's speaking directly to the right people, you know, in the voice of the Vario, in the voice of the working class, in the voice of the downwardly mobile first-generation uh, college kids. Also, the far left, despite its terrible sectarian reputation and so on, it's always had a crucial role to play. 
And where is the far left today, except for crazy groups who seem to support uh, the dictatorship of Assad in Syria and so on? Uh, <laughs> I was very critical of the International Socialist Organization for not, not having a more economically diverse membership and recruiting mainly, you know, college students. But I was the first mourner uh, at their passing because I, I think they represented certain essential values. Uh, which right. have now been, you know, been lost. Is this an argument against a Big Ten organization like DSA, which allows various factions and a diversity of views? No, uh, that's very important. But, you know, we still face, I think, a kind of, uh, you know, drought of ideas from the far left. And the renaissance of the far left keeps being aborted by its leaders, uh, selling out, like in the case of Syriza in in Greece, for example, or you know what's happened to Podemos, you know in 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 Spain. I mean, Rankin Al filed support for revolutionary socialist politics is, is still there, but the leadership experience has been terrible. So what is, what is to be done uh, then? How, how does the DSA coalition become more like the Sanders coalition? Because in that article, the, the answer can't be for middle-class white kids to just castigate themselves for being middle-class white kids. I'm not saying that's what you're suggesting, but but how do you get from A, a to B? Because the Sanders coalition does demonstrate that something pretty powerful is possible. After this is podcast, you will undoubtedly receive some angry Messages from individual DSA chapters and groups who are saying, you know, screw Mike Davis. We're doing exactly what he says we're neglecting to do. And that's true. And that's very inspiring. I just want to see the groups who focus on organizing and recruitment of working class youth who are highly critical of electoralism while at the same time they participate. Uh, in the Sanders campaign, who are totally movement-oriented, who have individual projects to support the unions, to work within unions, to work with the unorganized and so on. That's the wing of the broader movement that I belong to or want to you know, belong to, and all power to them. But are they a majority in DSA? Well, because of disease and where I live, I've illness and where I live, I've been pretty much cut off from activism. So I should probably keep my mouth shut about these things, but I don't think they're yet uh, the majority. And they have several national caucuses, but I'd love to hear more about what they're doing, about their views, and the necessity to be more aggressive in shaping the the Sanders campaign, the post-primary uh, Sanders campaign, or should I say the post-primary Sanders uh, constituency of activists? Well, that, that that's the question I want to want to end on because I've kept you for forever, naturally, because I don't want this interview to end, but it probably should at some point. <laughs> How, first of all, do you think that we should transition out of this moment so that we get the best of electoralism in terms of these millions of conversations that have been had and the power of talking to so many people and bringing them over to these ideas, which polls show that we have around around Medicare for all and a green 
New Deal, how do we transition that into a movement that lasts beyond the Sanders campaign? And also what what role maybe does does Sanders play in that? I am confident that he will fight to the uh, you know to the very end for the positions of the of the campaign. And anybody thinks he's down and out just has no idea what what his movement is about. I think there has to be a transition, however, in in the leadership of that camp. And he's most valuable now and in the future, leading the fight in the Senate and being the senior statesman of the movement. But the young multiracial cadre of the movement need to become its, its visible leaders. My oldest daughter uh, has been to a dozen Sanders events, and DSA conferences, and so on. And from her reports and analysis, it's convinced me that the a first step, an absolutely essential step, and in some ways very easy to do, is simply there needs to be a, a discussion forum on strategy and tactics curated by people like the left wing of the DSA. Uh, and it needs to be public. Now, I know that various documents and proposals circulate within groups and movements, but for most of us, who are not in a place or a situation that allows us to uh, participate in these groups. We have no idea what's, what's going on. There are so many voices on the left speaking now, and I've tried for several years to try and find a way to hear them, but I, I realize I just continuously remain out of touch. So to create a discussion forum for tactics and strategy, the way forward, curated by like the left of DSA or whoever. And this is different from Jacobin. Jacobin is, of course, you know, an immense uh, uh, resource, but it's not the place to debate tactics and strategy. Uh, it's the place to read fabulous articles about political economy, the left and other places. You know, it's a really rich resource as I would argue still is the institution to which I've spent half my adult life, the New Left Review. But we need something separate. Jackman's not going to provide it. The nation's not going to provide it, et cetera. You know, the left has created and created immediately. It could even take the form initially of a, of a debate form about, you know, the pandemics. But we need to have a, a structured debate with different strategic proposals and and tactical ideas that's accessible very broadly by everybody, you know, including old farts like me who, uh, <laughs> you know, now camped out in my uh, garage because of the the pandemic. I think that's an urgent priority, an absolutely necessary starting point to kind of rearm ourselves and regear our for the struggle ahead. Well, well, how how do we, in terms of the more concrete rather than theoretical aspects of the struggle, not to counterpose concreteness in theory, but but how do we organize in this situation to exercise actual power, given that the left strength so often lies in mobilized people assembled together in public in the streets, and arresting this pandemic by contrast requires. Social distance. 
Well, I don't see a contradiction between social distancing and, and, and protest. I mean, it's one of the Ten Commandments of, of, of the left. Maybe it's the first commandment. You <laughs> never relinquish the streets. I mean, I'm waiting for friends to give me some ideas because I intend to make a placard. And I, by the way, am in the absolute highest risk group. I have a suppressed immune system, cancer, respiratory problems, et cetera, et cetera. But I see no personal risk whatsoever in standing on a street corner with a sign that demands paid sick leave or just says solidarity with the nurses union, you know, whatever. We should still be in the streets. We can do it safely. We can use social uh, distancing. We can encourage, as some left groups already are, an active personal politics of, 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 of solidarity, you know, helping the elderly. I mean, young people are not at tremendous risk at this moment from it. I'm not opposing social distancing. I'm opposing house arrest. I'm opposing the fear it leads people to just want to set this out and watch uh, HBO or something. We need to reassert ourselves in the public sphere. And as I argue in a recent opinion piece, being out there uh, is a powerful medicine in itself. And although I'm a relic from a different age, I'm sure that, uh, you know, the generation Zers, for instance, will have a million ideas about how to protest and organize while being prudent uh, about risk uh, to health. The idea that this suddenly shuts down all uh, traditional political activity, I really believe that's nonsense. When you're at home and surrounded by so many depressive events in your life, it's more important than ever to get exercise, to fight off depression, and to strengthen your immune system. This is an opportunity to become healthier. And that the idea that riding a bike or jogging or simply taking a, you know, a walk is somehow socially responsible, that's absolutely absurd. Don't go to the gym. Avoid team sports. Don't run to uh, a crowded uh, campground somewhere. But be outdoors and attempt to trend late social distancing into uh, enforced seclusion inside your, your house or your apartment is not only unnecessary, it is simply absurd. And we don't yet know crucial parameters of the pandemic. It is very prudent at this moment that we should use uh, maximum social distancing in in many activities, but it could turn out that this pandemic, this variety of SARS virus is more like the original. And the thing, the original SARS, by the way, you know, killed 10% of the people who got it. It was much more deadly initially, but it did have the advantage over influenza that you spread the virus only when you had, you had become symptomatic. We hear a lot about asymptomatic cases, could well be true. We should act prudently. But in fact, it may not be as common as is feared. But I have no intention of using uh, public health device. I'm just saying that there's every reason to exercise and be outdoors. There's every reason 
to stand up for our politics in public space in you know a prudent way. I mean, part of the disaster of this is just simply this question of face masks, why there are not enough face masks. Simple availability of those face masks, which despite what some media were claiming early on, are 95% effective in preventing droplets uh, virus from, from reaching your, uh, your tissues. There are enough of that. Half the closures that are going on now would not be necessary. My wife's best friend is bunkered in Hong Kong, and there are plenty of face masks in Hong Kong, plenty of food available. She's teaching online. People still take walks. This is an example with the failure to stockpile the most obvious protective, obvious, simple, cheap protective thing uh, has led to incalculable circumstances. You know, starting with nurses who don't have and doctors who don't have access to nursing employees who don't have access to senior citizens who don't have access, but also the trickle down effect of this. That alone, apart from the testing shortage and everything else, that alone is an enormous indictment, particularly because things have happened exactly as they were predicted to have happened and been predicted for so many years. So people simply use their, you know, their own intelligent understanding of what's going on. Be prudent, but don't allow them to lock yourselves in the home. Now, that may be different in, in extremely population-dense or congested circumstances and so on. But you're absolutely no risk being outdoors, staying at a distance from other people and avoiding group activities. Marilyn Katz, who's one of the heroes of the 60s left, uh, based in Chicago, is started an online Pilates movement amongst her friends, uh, which seems to be spreading like, you know, like wildfire. So important to trust in the intelligence of people. The myth being propagated that we're all just a mad stampeding herd. If people are emptying supermarkets, what choice do they have after they're told that they may have to stay at home for weeks, potentially uh, months at a time? That's not irrational in the absence of any kind of serious alternative that I think the left in particular should, should appeal both to people's rationality and above all the fact that what transforms the experience of a disaster in academic it's being given a social task uh, to perform. One of, the most, one of the worst things about disaster preparedness in California is that in an earthquake, in preparing for an earthquake, you basically stock toilet paper and then wait to be dug out of the rubble. Let the professionals do it. This is not the system that exists in other countries. This isn't even the system that exists in San Francisco, where people are are given responsibilities to, say, turn off the gas to the senior citizen down the block. All health personnel are ready to, even if they're retired, you know, to come in action where people have responsible social role. And what differentiates a disaster response in a completely capitalistic, atomized society from a society in which communal self-organization exists is precisely that. It's a bit 
people's better natures are are activated and that they have responsible you know roles to play and this is never included in disaster planning in this country or in health uh, emergency planning well mike davis thank you very much it's my pleasure and i uh, hope that some people respond to this by heavily criticizing me because uh, i need a lot more education in these things too thank you Mike Davis is the author of so many important books, including City of Courts, Planet of Slums, Prisoners of the American Dream, and The Monster at Our Door, The Global Threat of Avian Flu. His next book, out this April, is Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s, co-authored with John Wiener. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances, but under circumstances existing already, given and transmitted from the past. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, somewhat more frequently amid coronavirus crisis. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Thank you to Ben Maybe for his help preparing this interview. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, but what really and truly does that is you telling other people that you like the show and that they should listen to it. Especially right now, some people have more time on their hands than normal and are looking for analysis about the situation, how to understand it, etc. Maybe you could suggest our podcast. Last but not least, please do make a monthly contribution at patreon.com slash the dig to help keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge.